Welcome to EANcast, your weekly source for education, research, and updates from the European Academy of Neurology. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends, we would like to invite you all to this podcast on oculomotor disorders, namely those which will be extremely helpful for you to precisely diagnose certain neurometabolic disorders. Before we begin, the two speakers would like to introduce themselves. And now I would like to hand over first to Tatiana Bremova. Uh, thank you very much, Michael, for a nice introduction. So um, I work as an assistant professor at the University Hospital, Inselspital in Bern, Switzerland. And I have been working in the field of neuro-ophthalmology and neuro-otology since 10 years now. Thank you very much for this invitation on, um, to speak on neurometabolic disorders, on the neuro-ophthalmology of these disorders. Thank you. Thank you, Tatiana. My name is Michael Strupp. I'm professor of neurology and clinical neurophysiology at the University of Munich, Department of Neurology and the German Center for Vertigo and Balance Disorders. And together with Tatiana, we have worked over the last years on various projects, including neurometabolic disorders. Uh, before we move on to this specific topic, as a kind of introduction, I think it's important for you to know the different types of eye movements, their topographic anatomical localization, and also some hints on how to properly examine patients in whom you suspect oculomotor disorders. Tatiana, what are the different types of eye movements everybody should examine in patients? Exactly. So um, there is not one eye movement system. It is a network of different functional systems. And we have six oculomotor systems. So we have the saccades that are very quick jumps up to 500 degrees per second in velocity. Then we have a smooth pursuit, obviously a smooth, so not saccadic, that is a slow, slow pursuit movement up to 100 degrees per second of velocity. We have reflexes, a vestibule ocular reflex that helps us to focus um, during our movement and we can see sharply on the on the spot of the sharpie spot of our vision during the movement. Then we have the optokinetic nystagmus that is basically a combination of the saccade and smooth pursuit and also very, um, very nice examination, especially in patients who are not compliant, for example, dementia patients or in children. Uh, we have also a gaze holding system and fixation that helps us to stay on the target of interest and not to move further so we can fixate and fixation is basically looking straight forward so so to have the steady gaze 
Yeah, so so these are different eye movement system, and it is important to know that there are different networks behind these systems. Thank you. What are let's focus on the saccades, the relevant anatomical structures for vertical and horizontal saccades. I mentioned that because impairment of saccades, as we will notice later, are key clinical features of certain neurometabolic diseases. So what are the relevant neuroanatomical structures, Tatiana? Thank you very much, Michael. This is a very excellent question. So um, there is a very nice mnemonic help that you can use in your clinical practice. Basically, for the vertical eye movements, we have structures in the mesencephalon. So the letter E, vertical, and mesencephalon, the midbrain. And then for the horizontal eye movements, these centers are positioned, are localized, in pawns, so the letter O. So this is something you can you can think of once once you examine your patients. And obviously, so if we speak about the saccades in particular that are very important in some neurometabolic disorders, we think about rostro-interstitial nucleus of the longitudinal mediofascicle, RIMLF, that is in the rostro-midbrain mesencephalon. And then uh, this is very important for the vertical saccades. And then we have the nucleus, uh, interstitial nucleus of cacao that is very important for the vertical gaze holding. And for the horizontal eye movements for the horizontal saccades, we have the paramedian pontin reticular formation, an abbreviation PPRF, and also for the gaze holding, we have the nucleus prepositus hypoglossy. So obviously there are different structural anatomical correlates, and then you can also, once you see uh, the abnormalities of the vertical or horizontal saccades respectively, then you can also um, correlate this with the topoanatomical substrate in the brainstem. So in other words, to summarize this up, vertical and torsional eye movements are generated in the midbrain and horizontal eye movements in the pons. So that's a simple take-home message for all of you. Uh, now, when you examine eye movements, namely saccades during the bedside examination, uh, what are frequent mistakes which are often done by doctors, and uh, what are your recommendations on how to properly examine horizontal and vertical saccades, Tatiana? Thank you. So the major problem with this is that people think examining vertical eye movements is just the examination of the smooth pursuit. So that's usually the, the biggest problem with this. Please do not uh, forget saccades. So if you start with the smooth pursuit, uh, the, the patient um, fixates the target and you move up and down, that's fine. But, but then don't forget the saccades. And what happens very, very often is that the patients try to 
um, to initiate and to speed up the impaired vertical saccades by blinking because there are different, um, different neurons in the brainstem that make silencing burst neurons during the blinking, meaning if the patient blinks, he tries to speed up the saccades, meaning you have to hold the, the eyelids. Otherwise, you don't see the eye movements, you don't see the saccades. So this is a, a very important hint. Once you see that the patient blinks too much, please hold um, the eyelids, but also think about, okay, this is sort of compensation strategy. And there is a number of compensation strategies that patients uh, with neurodegenerative, but also with other neurometabolic disorders tend to use to, to initiate the movement. For example, they use with the whole upper body, they, they work, they, they move with their heads, uh, so up and down in order to, to look at the target. So if you see, or even they use so-called head thrust um, in order to look to, to the right and to the left. So think of these hints. These are already the compensating strategies, the hints that, that um, suggests you some oculomotor problem. Thank you. Uh, the final question related to the bedside examination. Uh, which amplitude do you recommend to be examined of the saccades during the bedside testing? Because sometimes the amplitudes are too large, others are too small. What is your recommendation based on your experience with many, many patients with an impairment of saccades? Thank you very much. This is yes, this this is actually part of the proper eye movement examination that you don't ask your patients to to do to perform too much. So if you take like zero point in the middle if the patient looks straight ahead. So imagine 10 degrees up. It's like you you can also if if you like 20 centimeters from the patient's eyes, then imagine 10 centimeters up, so 10 degrees up and 10 degrees or 10 centimeters down. So in total there is the range of eye movement of 20 degrees. And that's the same plus minus horizontally so it shouldn't be too large too extensive movement otherwise even even the healthy persons use their heads to initiate the movement to initiate the jump so yeah this is a very important aspect of the eye movement examination yeah i think we cannot reiterate that too often because a proper examination is the prerequisite of a correct diagnosis and sometimes which is physiological as you mentioned patients do a combined movement of the head and the eyes and to avoid that the patient could also hold their head by their hands. Now uh, we move over to the second part and the specific topic of this podcast. It's eye movements in neurometabolic diseases. Tatiana, which are the specific neurometabolic diseases we are going to talk about during the next 10 minutes? 
thank you very much, Michael. So I'll be speaking um, about the lysosomal storage disorders and in particular about Niemann-Pictopsy, neuropathic Gaucher disease, and also GM2 gangliosidosis, Tazex and Tandhoff. So these are really rare and ultra-rare diseases. And as you will notice, examination of eye movements, namely in Niemann-Pick type C, can give you the clue to the diagnosis because the impairment of saccades is the first and very frequent clinical sign in Niemann-Pick. Pick type C. Tatiana, what are the typical ocular motor findings in this ultra rare disease? Thank you. So, Niemann Pick type C for Niemann Pick type C disease, a so called vertical supranuclear saccade palsy is the hallmark, so the typical finding. And not, as usual, you can find in the literature vertical supranuclear gaze palsy, meaning the saccades, the birth neurons for the saccades are the neurons, the cell cells with the highest metabolism in the whole brain. So you can imagine how much energy they use because the whole time, every millisecond, we perform thousands of saccades, of, of micro saccades. So they really need to fire constantly. And the problem in these uh, neurodegenerative neurometabolic diseases is especially these neurons are very prone to, to the uh, storage of the lipids and they undergo very quickly. So first, what you can find, even in small children, is this saccade palsy. And why we speak about the supranuclear? What, what does this term mean? This term means that the structures, the nuclear, this nucleus rostro interstitial nucleus of the longitudinal medial fascicle in the midbrain, that is the first structure in nematopsy where the neurons degenerate. And that's why you have firstly the vertical supranuclear saccade palsy and then the vertical supranuclear gaze palsy because at some point also further centers, further structures in brainstem degenerate that are also responsible for the gaze holding and for the smooth pursuit. What can you say about horizontal eye movements in Niemann Pick type C? Are they also impaired? And what is the sequence of vertical and horizontal eye movement impairments? in Niemann-Pick type C. Thank you, Michael. So, um, as I mentioned, the first neurons to degenerate are the saccades, the vertical saccades. Then there is the vertical small pursuit. And however, this is not restricted to the vertical eye movements, but the horizontal eye movements follow meaning that the horizontal saccades are a very good biomarker uh, for the Naiman peak type C because they do have, they show some impairment, but they don't, uh, you do not have the ceiling effect. They don't degenerate thoroughly. So you can still, still examine uh, the horizontal 
saccad uh, even in the very severe patients with Niemann peak type C. So to summarize this up, the sequence is first a supranuclear vertical saccade palsy, then a supranuclear vertical gaze palsy, and then a horizontal saccade, and finally also a horizontal uh, gaze palsy. You have done a study in 72 patients, a multinational study. Uh, how many of these 72 patients had a vertical saccade palsy? An excellent question, Michael. Basically, 99.5%. Almost all of these 72 patients had uh, the saccadic palsy. Nevertheless, and this is to emphasize, just 45% had the complete vertical gaze palsy. So obviously, there is a huge difference between these systems. So this underlines how important a proper examination of vertical saccades is, namely in children, but also in adults in whom you have no idea about the diagnosis if they come with movement disorders, dizziness, or ataxia to your clinics and hospitals. The other thing, in the literature it had been reported that there's a difference between the impairment of upward and downward saccades. Could you make a comment on that based on the 72 patients you and your team had examined? Well, I cannot confirm this finding. Uh, I have to be honest. Even though um, there is a anatomical underlying that the pathways are not the same in the upward and downward direction, I couldn't find a, a difference between these two saccadic systems. So it was basically the same. Yeah, so this is learning and de-learning for you and your clinical practice. There was no difference between the impairment of upward and downward saccades although the anatomical structures are different for upward and downward saccades. Now, we would like to move over to GM2, that means Tay-Sachs and Sentoff disease, also lysosomal diseases. Uh, what are the typical oculomotor findings in gangliocytosis GM2, Tatiana? Um, thank you, Michael. So this is a very interesting disease because what's, what's so striking is the velocity and the acceleration during the saccades, especially during the horizontal saccades, fluctuates. So you can really see if you plot, if you examine the patients with the aquagraphically uh, with a special goggles uh, with a camera on their eyes, you can see that the velocity indeed fluctuates. Once it is uh, higher, once it is slower. And um, however, I would like to also note that you can see uh, also the clinical impairment, you can also um, partly see this, these velocity fluctuations uh, once you perform the saccadic eye movement examination so that sometimes also one eye is much quicker than the other one and it it is like as if the eyes were uh, were swimming from one direction to the other one 
So this is a very interesting finding, which you can also notice during your bedside examination. And finally, let's talk about Gaucher disease. What are the typical findings of the vestibular and the oculomotor system in Gaucher disease? What's also very striking about these lysosomal storage diseases is that nobody knows why one disease starts with the horizontal saccadic system and another disease starts with the vertical saccadic system. So in the contrary to, to Niemann-Pick type C, in neuropathic Gaucher disease, you can see as a first abnormality, the horizontal supranuclear saccade palsy. And as, as it follows, the same as in MPC, this step-by-step uh, uh, step neurodegeneration, horizontal supranuclear gaze palsy follows. And that's what, what's striking, especially in children with this neuropathic Gaucher disease, they can adapt to everything. And in children, especially in small kids, you really can see that they use their vestibular ocular reflex in order to refixate. So once you examine them, they tend to perform very quick horizontal head movements, basically these so-called head thrusts, in, in orders to look uh, to the right and to the left. Well, vestibular reflex is a very, very quick reflex. It's just three neurons arc, meaning that um, they can use it perfectly for the saccades to compensate for the horizontal, for the missing horizontal saccades. So for your clinical practice, quick head movements of patients, of children, namely, is a red flag to look for impairment of the saccadic, but also the smooth pursuit system. You find that in ocular motor abraxia. In NPC, children often do these vertical head movements. And as Tatiana mentioned, in Gaucher, they often do horizontal head movements to use their intact vestibular ocular reflex to generate movements of the eyes in space. So um, to summarize this up, by the examination of eye movements, you have a very powerful bedside tool in your hand without any laboratory tests to properly examine eye movements and to find the most frequent clinical signs in several neurometabolic diseases, namely Niemann-Pick type C, GM2, and Gaucher. So this was partially academic medicine. What counts for the patient at the end of the day is a treatment. Tatiana, does the diagnosis of NPC and GM2 has any therapeutic consequences? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is why we really need to know and to learn to examine the eye movement systems properly and as quickly as possible, meaning as early as possible, even in small children. You can use, for example, uh, small toys um, and, and children look up and down and, and to the right and to the left. And you can observe maybe these compensating eye movements, head thrust and blinking. And what's very important is the earlier you diagnose and the earlier you initiate the treatment, the less the patient will be impaired and the 
and the longer he will live. Basically, there is a really robust body of evidence uh, that the pre-symptomatic um, treatment is indeed crucial um, to, to counteract the, the neurodegeneration. So, and what and are the therapeutic options we have nowadays? There's one which is already approved in many countries and there's another upcoming molecule which looks promising. Exactly. So in MPC, we have the substrate reduction treatment with Miglustat. Basically, the, the amount of cholesterol and glycosphingolipids in neurons decreases and it stabilizes the disease. And there are some uh, clinical trials ongoing. And I'm also the PI at our university hospital in Bern in the phase two uh, placebo-controlled trial with um, acetyl-leucine, which is a modified amino acid from leucine, so it's acetylized leucine. And in the preclinical studies, uh, it has been shown that it has multimodal effects, both at the level of the energy metabolism, antioxidant metabolism, but also it performs, it um, it uh, leads to the substrate reduction. And right now, there have to be further studies on why actually acetyloleucine is also leading to the decreasing of the amount of cholesterol and glycolipids in the in the neurons of cerebellum in Purkinje cells. So it's it's very exciting, very exciting research. Yeah, to summarize this up, so two, two phase B studies Uh, have shown a benefit of acetyl-L-leucine, one in NPC and the other recently published in Neurology in GUM2, Tay-Sachs, and also Santoff disease. And uh, to finalize this, the recruitment of a phase three trial has been finished, US and Europe in NPC with acetyl-L-leucine. Let's see what the results will be. In other words, I think the proper and correct and early diagnosis of these lysosomal diseases has nowadays also immediate therapeutic consequences, and therefore we should not overlook this and these diagnoses, mainly in children. So, to summarize this up, thank you very much, Tatiana. I think we have given you an overview on how to properly examine eye movements, namely saccades. And I think we have also pointed out how important the examination of saccades is for the diagnosis of various lysosomal diseases, namely Niemann-Pick type C, gangliosidosis, GM2, but also Gaucher disease. And now for your clinical practice, I think you should do just some exercise to learn how to properly do that and just apply it and do not forget to examine saccades in a proper way. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you all for listening to uh, this podcast. The good thing is you can listen to that several times and repetition is very important for education and also for your memory. All in all, enjoy our various podcasts the EAN is now producing and presenting, covering the whole field of neurology. And you can specifically pick out what you like or where you think you have some deficits. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Bye.
This has been Ia Yangcast Weekly Neurology. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcatcher for weekly updates from the European Academy of Neurology. You can also listen to this and all of our previous episodes on the EAN campus to gain points and become an EAN expert in any of our 29 neurological specialties. Simply become an EAN individual member to gain access. For more information, visit ean.org membership. That's ean.org backslash membership. Thanks for listening. EANcast Weekly Neurology is your unbiased and independent source for educational and research-related neurological content. Although all content is provided by experts in their field, it should not be considered official medical advice.